بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما وفقا في الدين يا رب العالمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله الحمد لله we are now in module 6 we are steadily making progress as we go through the Farda'ain knowledge and we have just to trace our steps we covered in module 1 the foundations of what we believe as Muslims our aqidah that is the component of Iman in the Hadith of Jibreel. After talking about and learning our basic Aqidah, we then went into Module 2, which was about the transmission of Islam. And that was to familiarize ourselves with how Islam works in terms of law and how we know what we know and how the deen has been preserved and transmitted to us. And that was kind of a bridge between aqidah and law, what we call fiqh. That led us into module three. What was module three? Fasting, right? We would have done tahara, but we were two weeks before Ramadan, so we went ahead and did the fiqh of fasting in module three. And after Ramadan, we came back and did Module 4 on Tahara, purification. And we just finished Module 5 on Salat, alhamdulillah. So we have covered a, a good amount of ground. And we come now to Module 6, which is Zakat. Now, Zakat is a very unique act of worship. And it's something that occurs yearly which means unlike wudu and salat, which we're doing every single day virtually, zakat is once a year. And when we talk about ibadah or worship, we understand that there are acts of worship that are qalbiyah, they're heart-based, such as love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, love for the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, hope in Allah's mercy and forgiveness, fear of Allah Ta'ala, trust, awe, khashya, haiba, khushur, all these qualities are actions, but they're heart-based. They're done internally, and the effects are seen in the body. Then we have acts of worship that are based on the bodily limbs, a'mal al-jawarih. And these are purification, Prayer and fasting. And there's more than that, obviously. But in what we've covered, we've looked at the limb-based acts of worship as in purification, prayer, and fasting. In module 6, we're looking at an act of worship that is money-based, wealth-based, what we call ibadatun maliya. It is based on what we're giving. And there's actually more acts of worship that are money-based than just paying zakat. There is, of course, zakat, the main one. Then there is sadaqah, which is voluntary charity. There's also gift-giving and endowments and things like that. So today, inshallah, we're going to do an overview of Module 6. Now, just to relieve you of any possible anxiety because this does involve money and calculations this is not going to go longer than three or four sessions right and i have a few disclaimers to make uh, if not this week next week inshallah some disclaimers on how we go about learning this and what we're going to look at and what we're not going to look at all right so we want to look at our objectives for Module 6 as a whole and then look at a few of these tonight. So the objectives, what we want to have accomplished by the end of Module 6 is to define and understand the term zakat 
and the difference between it and voluntary charity. So this does involve us learning some terms, right? Certain istilahat, technical terms, right? Such as zakat and sadaqah. Are they the same? Are they different? If so, how? We also want to understand the wisdom of zakat, its purpose, its rewards, as well as the warnings, the severe divine threats against those who fail to pay their zakat. We also want to learn about uh, those on whom zakat is wajib. Maybe who has to pay zakat? Uh, many of the fuqaha, when they talk about the fardain, they say that when it concerns zakat, technically you don't have to know all of the ins and outs of how to pay zakat. You just need to know when it becomes wajib on you. And as long as you know that, you should be good to go. Because if you recognize, well, when I have this much wealth, it becomes wajib, it is at that stage you go and find out how you pay it, right? So who has to pay it and who doesn't? We also want to learn how to pay zakat, particularly on gold, silver, currencies, different types of currencies. How does one pay zakat on debts, the different kinds of debts, what's eligible and what's not. We also want to know how to pay zakat on what the scholars call fa'idah. And fa'idah here doesn't mean interest. It means money or wealth that comes your way without earning. Now you didn't, you didn't earn it. You didn't buy something. You didn't uh, have an exchange of services or products. It's like inheritance money from a relative who passed away. Or a wife who receives a mahar for her from her husband. Or a gift, a monetary gift someone gives you. How do you pay zakat on those things? We also want to know how to pay zakat on trade and merchandise. This is very important, specifically for those of you who have businesses and you have uh, items that you keep in storage, merchandise that you cycle through. You need to know how to pay zakat on these things. And we want to know the proper recipients of zakat. I mean, who do we give our zakat to? What qualities must they fulfill? And that also means who cannot receive zakat. Just as we learn those who receive it, we also learn those who cannot receive it. We don't say should not, cannot. And we look at zakatul fitr, how it is paid and the wisdom behind it, because that's included in the fardain, right? And lastly, we want to apply this fardain knowledge to common contemporary everyday issues. So, I don't remember if it's here in this lesson tonight, towards the end in my notes, or if it's in the next class. I have a disclaimer, and it's in the, in the front of my mind right now. And that disclaimer is that everyone's particular zakat case is unique to them. So, we want to keep the questions related to the material itself, and in terms of... Uh, a person's personal scenarios, those are better done privately because you can't really answer detailed zakat questions uh, just off the top of your head without considering so many different factors that we'd have to ask about. So we want to get our bearings. This act of worship is neglected because it's not seen by most people. We don't see it when people are paying zakat. We pay our own zakat. We don't really see others doing it. We may not realize where the zakat is going and who is receiving it. And we have to understand that this pillar of Islam is the third pillar. And that there can be no Islam without this pillar of zakat. We have a few statements from the early generations from the Sahaba and the Tabi'un. Such as the statement of Al-Ahnaf ibn Qais. When you hoard money, your money, you belong to it. But when you spend it, it belongs to you. We have the saying of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. If you could invest in a treasure that cannot be stolen and which will never depreciate, would you do so through charity? And the saying of Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, 
Prayer takes you halfway. Fasting gets you to the door, but charity gives you an audience with the king. Now, we mentioned that zakat is the third pillar of Islam. And zakat was made an obligation in the second year after the hijrah of the Prophet The obligation of zakat is established in the Quran. It is established in the mass transmitted mutawatir sunnah. And it is established as an obligation by ijma'ah. What this means is it is so clear and obvious as a part of our deen that anyone who denies the obligation of zakat is outside of the fold of Islam. And in a society where there is Islamic governance and a legitimate Islamic authority, zakat is taken from the people even if they don't want to give it. In Islam, we don't really have a complex tax system outside of zakat, jizya, and kharaj, if you take that out of zakat, we basically have these simple forms. Now, in Arabic, the word zakat means growth and purity. It has both of these meanings in it. So there's numu, this growth, and also purity. So one of the ways you can understand the significance of zakat is to think of a really nice garden. It's a nice walled garden. It's got a lot of uh, nice, beautiful flowers, and it's fragrant. Now, if you left that garden over many weeks and months, eventually that garden is going to get overrun by what? Weeds. It'll get overrun by weeds. In order to tend to this nice lush garden, you have to go in there from time to time to remove the invasive weeds that will encroach on the garden. If you neglect that garden, then it's only a matter of time before the weeds overtake the garden and smother everything else, killing them. So the weeds have to be removed for that garden to flourish. And zakat is the way we remove the weeds from our wealth to purify it so that it can grow. Some of the ulama say that you should think of zakat also like, like hair, right? If someone wants to have really nice, long, lush hair, they can't just grow it until it goes six feet long, and leaving it alone. Because they're going to get split ends, it's going to get damaged. If someone wants to have really long, healthy hair, what do they have to do? Over, every now and again, they're going to have to trim it. You trim the hair, and that allows it to grow uh, much thicker, and it allows it to be a lot healthier than if it were just left alone for split ends to develop. Same thing for your fingernails, right? If you didn't cut your fingernails, you know, imagine how hard it is to do things if your nails are growing out one foot long. They just start to curl. You see the Guinness Book of World Records, the picture of the person with the longest nails. How do they live? They can't. It's very hard to function. So zakat is the means of purifying our own nufus and our wealth in a way that promotes growth. So that numu, that growth, is not just for our own money, right? It, it, it brings barakah to what we have, but it's also promoting growth to those who receive it and to the society in which it is spent because it's circulating and keeping the economy active. That money is not just stored and hoarded and not being used in the economy. So it's a means of growth for the giver, the receiver and the entire community. And the point we have to emphasize is that just as Allah Ta'ala has a right over our hearts and our bodies, He has a right over our wealth. All of these things, our bodies, minds and souls are amanat, they're trust given to us by Allah Ta'ala. Allah has a say-so over what we do with our money just as he has say so over what we do with our bodies and our minds and our hearts. So zakat is a third, the third pillar of Islam for a reason. Now we want to talk about the virtues and the wisdoms and the warnings like we did for module 5 about salat. We always begin these modules talking about these things because 
when you talk about the ins and outs of salat and the ins and outs of zakat, you're learning a lot of technical information. And to be frank, that can sometimes be a bit unexciting, right? Because it's very technical at times. But when you know the why behind the act of worship, it makes it much easier to, to know and learn the how. When we talk about the virtue of salat and the importance of salat and the warning against neglecting salat, it gives us more uh, himma, more aspiration and energy to apply to learning the technical details of how to pray. And the same goes for zakat. One of the names of Allah Ta'ala is Al-Ghani, the, the one who is free of all needs. So if Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala had willed, He could have made everyone wealthy. He could have made every single person free of needing any material things. They could have been self-sufficient and never suffer any poverty or any want. But it is the will of Allah Ta'ala and His wisdom that He has made some people wealthy and some people less wealthy, some rich and some poor. And this is a manifestation of His divine names and His power is also a test, not just a test for the poor. It's also a test for the wealthy and how they spend their, their money. When we examine the Qur'an, we see that Allah Ta'ala pairs Salat and Zakat 32 times. And in Surah At-Tawbah, Allah makes the Ukhuwa Diniyah, this brotherhood of deen, conditional on establishing prayer and paying Zakat. فَإِن تَابُوا وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةِ وَآتَوُوا الزَّكَاةِ فَإِخْوَانُكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ He says about the idol worshippers, if they repent, this in here repent means they become Muslim, they repent from shirk. وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةِ And they establish the salat. وَآتَوُوا الزَّكَاةِ And they give zakat. What is the consequence? فَإِخْوَانُكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ They are your brothers in the deen. What is the converse understanding of that? If they don't make tawbah, if they don't establish salat, if they don't pay zakat, they're not your brothers in deen. So this is showing the importance of zakat. Zakat is also one of the means of receiving the rahmah of Allah. Allah Ta'ala tells us in Surah Al-A'raf, وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ And this is the part that many people know. The first portion of the verse. My mercy encompasses all things. But we have to read the rest of the verse. وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ فَسَأَكْتُبُهَا لِلَّذِينَ يَتَّقُونَ وَيُؤْتُونَ الزَّكَاةَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ بِآيَاتِنَا يُؤْمِنُونَ My mercy encompasses all things and I shall decree it for those who are God-fearing, who pay the zakat and who believe in our signs. So there's a link between paying zakat and receiving the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Paying zakat is also, as we see, the means to success in this life and the next. In the beginning of Surah Al-Mu'minun, Allah gives us those qualities with those who are successful. قَدْ أَفْلَحَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ فِي صَلَاتِهِمْ خَاشِعُونَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ عَنِ اللَّغْوِ مُعْرِضُونَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ لِلزَّكَاةِ فَاعِلُونَ Successful indeed are the believers. Who are those believers? Those who are humbly attentive in their prayers. خاشعون Who turn away from vain talk and who pay the zakat. And they have other qualities in the subsequent verses. Zakat is also virtuous because it is a means of something really valuable that's also easy to do. And that is idkhal surur fi qulubil muslimin. Making believers from the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ happy and joyous. When you do things that bring joy to the hearts of the ummah of Rasulullah ﷺ, you open yourselves up to the rahmah of Allah. So that includes feeding people, receiving them as guests, uh, giving them gifts, anything. But zakat is an even higher degree of that because it's obligatory. You know, Allah gives us a choice whether we invite someone to our house or not. 
whether we give them a gift or not. But zakat is an obligation and also a means of bringing joy to the hearts of the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ. It is a means of purifying the rest of our money. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, pay zakat out of your wealth, it shall purify you. So it's not just your wealth, it's purifying you. And the scholars say it means it's purifying you from your own miserliness, your own greed, your own attachment to that money is purifying you from hypocrisy. It gives you the qualities of generous people, right? If Allah tells us to be generous but leaves it up to us how to be generous, maybe we never become generous. But Allah has told us to be generous and He made zakat an obligation to basically force us to become generous if we do give it in the right, with the right intention, with the right spiritual attitude. The Prophet ﷺ also tells us that paid zakat will be a shade for people on the last day. The hadith says every person will be in the shade of his charity on the day of resurrection. It's also a means of receiving more barakat. The Prophet ﷺ says no people ever withhold the zakat of their wealth, but rain is withheld from the sky. That's a threat. But in that threat is also an implicit promise that if you pay the zakat, you receive the barakat, the, the rains. There's another narration of this hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says that were it not for the animals, the rain wouldn't come down on those who don't pay zakat. So if you're in a place and people aren't all paying the zakat, you may still receive rain, but it's probably to do with the animals and the rahmah towards them, not to the people. It's a very severe threat. Giving zakat also averts the ghadab of Allah, the displeasure of Allah, because the hadith says, charity given in secret extinguishes the wrath of the Lord. Yutfi ghadab al-Rabb. It wards off a bad ending that should be edited. A bad ending at the time of death. And one of the means of husn khatima, having a good end, is paying zakat. And we, we know this how? We know this from what has been witnessed and experienced over a millennia. We have in the chronicles of Islamic history, many accounts of people who were having their last moments before leaving this world. So you have so many accounts of the states of people before they left this world, good and bad endings. And we have many, many narrations where people had bad endings because they were stingy and did not pay their zakat. So we can infer from those narrations that it's a means of having a good end. Because if not giving zakat tends to show up as a cause for a bad ending, then giving zakat is a means of a good ending. And those who hoard their wealth and do not pay their zakat are actually punished with their wealth on the day of judgment. One hadith mentions that the hoarders of gold and silver who do not pay the zakat on that they actually are punished with that very same gold and silver. It is heated up and it is used to stamp them uh, on their sides and in front and back. Likewise, bukhul uh, or shuh, miserliness is a fault. And the obligatory zakat forces us to treat that fault. So we may have a certain degree of stinginess. So zakat is the obligatory practice that forces us to treat that disease in the heart. And zakat reduces class conflict, envy, resentment, and economic turmoil. And there's more. <laughs> so these are the general rewards, uh, virtues, and warnings concerning zakat. On a more personal note, when you think about your own zakat, just think about 
what you have to do, what you have done over the years when you calculate it. When you're paying zakat, you are conserving your resources by preemptively stopping greater instances of need. Because if no one gave any charity, people who had minor needs would soon have major needs. You know, something that is a minor issue, right? Imagine, you know, that light goes off, that engine light goes off in, on your car. How long can you ignore it? It could be a minor problem for a week or two, but you keep ignoring it and that minor problem becomes a major problem where the initial repair would have cost you 200, but by delaying it, it now costs you 2,000. So when a person uh, gives charity in the form of zakat, they are actually preemptively stopping greater need from emerging in society. Because if no one pays zakat, no one gives sadaqah, those minor needs don't just go away. They intensify and they grow into major needs and that then becomes a, a, a problem, a larger problem for the whole society. So by paying zakat, you're also preventing things from getting worse in the long run. And by paying zakat, you are freeing yourself from excess. To grow, you have to cut back and trim to allow for renewal, as we said. And by paying zakat, you defend yourself against infestation. You remove those weeds. You keep them from coming into your garden. And the weeds, let's look at the heart as the garden, right? If the heart is a garden and you pay zakat, you keep the weeds. Let's say there are weeds there, but it's not from the lack of zakat. It's weeds from sins. By paying zakat, you're preventing other weeds from growing. And you're also cutting the weeds of other sins because... Zakat is a means of purifying the heart and having sins forgiven. There's so many virtues to this act, this third pillar of Islam. And when you think about how you pay your own zakat, just, you know, because most people pay it in Ramadan, and we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, when you pay zakat, it forces you to know exactly what you possess. Because most people you know, they think about money, they're just thinking about the bank account or this or that, you know, the assets they have. But when you have different sources of income scattered in different ways, you have to calculate all of that. You can't just calculate what's in your bank account while ignoring the other sources of income. You have to get a sense of where all of your money is coming in from. This forces you to know how much you possess, and when and where it was earned, where did this money come from, right? How was it earned? You know, what, what category is it in? Because each category has a different ruling in Sharia in terms of what you pay and how much that we'll be learning. And as you calculate your zakat, there's a benefit in that we often don't realize how m much is going on in our own financial lives. We may know <laughs> what's there, but we may not be aware of how things are coming and going and what is here and what is there. So when you calculate your zakat, you learn more about yourself. You learn about what you're consuming and how much, you know. You know, if you have cash, it's pretty clear. Like, you have cash and you buy groceries. When you're out of cash, you're, you're done. But if you have a bank card, how many of you growing up in your younger years have done overdrafts because you just didn't realize it happens, right? Or you just use the bank card over and over again and you're not paying attention. And then when you open the statement, you're like, oh my God, I spent that much money, right? You're not always aware of how much money is going into what. But when you do zakat, you're, also, you're becoming more cognizant of uh, where you're spending your money and how much you're spending. So when you calculate, it's a kind of self-reflection and it's a means of knowing more about yourself. And as you calculate your zakat, you come to the amount that must be given. You're reminded that your wealth is a trust and that this life is a test for the rich and the poor. Now, all that we've talked about so far and all of these points regarding the virtues, wisdoms and warnings of zakat, all of this describes the why. We want to know the why 
And really, we just need to know the why in one word or one sentence. Allah commands it. But by knowing more about the why and the virtues, we're encouraged to apply ourselves in learning the how. How do we pay our zakat? And as we said, this is going to stretch three sessions, maybe four. We're not going to go into every conceivable detail. And we're omitting entire sections of the fiqh of zakat that don't really apply to us. Unless you have a farm and you have livestock and crops, we're not going to talk about those things. We're only talking about the areas that are immediately relevant to most of us here in North America. So we come now to the how. And today's class is more of an introduction. We're not looking at all of the, the technical details just yet. I want you to think of your wealth as like a homemade pizza. Or you could say a homemade pie. The ingredients that you use to make this homemade pizza need to be good for you and good for others. You're not going to cook a nice, proper, healthy pizza for yourself and make a separate pizza that has toxic chemicals or poisons in it for your guest. You're not going to do that. It's one pizza. So all of the ingredients are going to be pure. They're going to be healthy and wholesome and good for you and whoever else takes a bite out of that pizza. So you gather your ingredients. And before you set to mixing them, you need to know what exactly you need, what are the proportions, what are you going to include, what are you not going to include. You don't want to add too much of one thing that's not necessary. You don't want to skimp on another ingredient. You want to make sure that everything is in due proportion. And you don't want to add things that are toxic or poisonous for yourself or for others who eat your pizza. So now you, you gather the ingredients, you got all of the, of the proportions set, you are ready to mix it, you mix the ingredients, you make your batter, you're, you, you roll it out, you flip it, you do all that stuff, you turn on the oven, you put on the cheese and all the toppings, you pop it in the oven, it cooks nicely, you take it out. Now what do you do? You take your pizza slicer, you slice those pieces, and it's at this point, when your pizza is out of the oven and ready to serve, guess what? The whole pizza belongs to you, except 2.5% of that, a 2.5% of the pizza you will cut out, and you're going to give that to the poor. The rest of it's yours. That is zakat. The 2.5% of the pizza is given to the deserving. The rest is yours. So think of it like that. It's not like you see in this picture. In that picture, we have, uh, we have six slices, really large slices in that picture, and one of them is missing. Right? That's not how much zakat we give. Right? We give 2.5%. So... <laughs> There's the one slice. Uh, a few points on zakat. Zakat is a flat rate on one savings. It's not a progressive tax that increases as your wealth increases. Every year, as you calculate, it's always going to be 2.5 of the whatever's beyond the nisab, the threshold that we talk about. It's not a progressive tax. <coughs> Now, we also know that charity starts at home. And we use the word charity here as sadaqah, charity, as voluntary charity. The Prophet ﷺ says, Begin with those you care for. When you give charity, you start with those you care for. So, those who are most deserving of our charity, our expenditures, are, are our immediate family, and then our relatives, and then those within the, the not-so-immediate relatives, right? We start at home with our charity. If every single person was to help out their immediate family and their relatives financially when there's need, 
then basically you'd have a much smaller percentage of people in society who are in financial need, right? Because a lot of the people out there who are in need, they have family, but for one reason or the other, the family is not helping them. And there's a, perhaps one could argue there's reasons for that. But if we start with charity at home, it reduces the number of poor in society. And that 2.5% that we're paying to others would cover the needs of those poor people who don't have the same family structure, who don't have the same safety net to support them, right? So zakat is a means of dealing with the economic challenges in society for people that are not our immediate family. If we're all taking care of each other as a family, that zakat is helping those who are not from our family, who may not have that social net, who may not have that family network, who are able to help them in their times of need. So all of that is the, just the, the you can say the gist of what zakat is for and how it works. Now, when we get into the fiqh of zakat, what we need to know as Muslims, we need to first learn certain key terms because these terms will come up again and again and we want to retain the Arabic so we're all on the same page because you could translate these terms in different ways in English. We want to retain the Arabic terms so that we're all clear. There are very common terms used when we talk about zakat and we need to understand these terms so that we grasp how to calculate and pay our zakat. So what follows in the next couple of slides are basically vocab words, technical terms that we should know when we're learning about zakat. And the first word obviously is going to be zakat itself. If we go back to the earlier slides, we mentioned how zakat in Arabic carries two meanings. What are the two meanings of zakat in Arabic? Purify and increase. That's the linguistic meaning. That's the meaning in the Arabic language. But it has a technical meaning too. According to the fuqaha, the jurist, there is a, a definition, right? A ta'rif or a had that explains the essence of what zakat is. And zakat, what we call the obligatory alms tax, is defined as the transfer of ownership, tamlik, of a portion of wealth specified by the lawgiver to a particular person with its intention. And this is the definition of the fuqaha. So they pack everything in that definition. So when they say uh, ownership, it means you can't give zakat from someone else's money. I can't reach into your pocket, pull out $100 and say I'm paying my zakat. That's not my money. It has to be from my money and I'm transferring ownership of that. And what I'm transferring, is that all of my money? No, it is a portion of my money, a portion of my wealth. How much? It is a portion specified by the shari'ah, the lawgiver. And when the fuqaha say shari'ah, they mean Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in some context, they mean the Prophet who is conveying the hukum of the shari'ah, the lawgiver, Allah ta'ala. So the portion is the 2.5%. And is given to a particular person. Meaning, you don't just give it to anybody and everybody. You, because zakat has to go to one or more of eight types of people specified in Surah Tawbah. If it goes to anyone who is not among those eight, it is invalid. You have to make sure it's going to one of those eight. So when they say a particular person, they mean... Uh, one of the eight categories of these zakat recipients. And we'll talk about them later. And lastly, they say uh, with its intention. Because it's an act of worship, you have to have an intention. Now, the, the fuqaha do discuss this in a lot of detail. 
Like, let's say a person is greedy and stingy. They don't want to pay their zakat. But they're living in a society where there is a sultan, a Muslim ruler. That Muslim ruler is authorized to go and forcibly collect that zakat. So they can take that zakat from that person. That person is giving it unwillingly, without a niyyah. So they're not getting reward, but it's still taken. Because it is the haq of others. It is a tax in that sense. But for the person who wants the reward of zakat, of course they have to have the niyyah. And it has to be antib al-nafs. It has to be done willingly and joyfully and with the intention of drawing near to Allah Ta'ala. Right? Because it is an act of worship after all. So the first term is just zakat itself in that definition. We come now to the next word, sadaqah. And we've had this conversation a few times. Uh, many people, they use the term zakat and, zak- and sadaqah interchangeably. They say, I'm going to give sadaqah, and they put the money in the zakat box. Or they want to give zakat and they put it in the sadaqah box. Let's clarify this a little bit. Now, sadaqah is a general term. It's lafzun am. It's a general term that actually encompasses any form of charitable giving. That means sadaqah includes zakat. It includes uh, voluntary charity. Both of them are implicit in that. And often in the Quran, Allah describes zakat while using the word sadaqah. You'll read the word sadaqah in the Quran and it's talking about zakat. Right? In the same chapter that talks about the eight recipients. خُذْ مِنْ أَمْوَالِهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُطَهِرُهُمْ وَتُزَكِّيهِمْ بِهَا وَصَلِّ عَلَيْهِمْ Allah tells the Prophet ﷺ, take from them sadaqah. Here it means zakat. So what we say is that sadaqah, when used by itself, it could mean zakat. And zakat, when used by itself, means zakat. But when the two are paired together, sadaqah is voluntary and zakat is obligatory. So we're talking about zakat as the pillar of Islam, what's obligatory. If someone used sadaqah instead of the word zakat, and they understood it to mean the obligatory charity, that's fine. But it's important to note the distinction. Because when your money has reached that nisab, which we'll learn in the next definition, that threshold, and you have a certain amount that is eligible to, for zakat, that money, the zakatable money, is not really yours anymore. Haqqun, disa'idi wal mahroom. It's not yours. What that means is, you don't get to choose to give it to just anybody. They have to be one of the eight recipients of zakat outlined in Surah Tawbah. You don't just give it to anybody. Sadaqah, on the other hand, the voluntary charity is your money. And as a voluntary charity, you can give that to whomever you want and for whatever purpose. You would not pay zakat, for instance, to build a chandelier in a masjid. Can you give sadaqah to a masjid to build a chandelier? Absolutely. Because that's your money, it's voluntary. But the zakat portion, whatever is zakat, is not for you to choose for these types of projects. Because it has to go to a human being, and that human being has to be one of the eight categories mentioned in Surah Tawbah, as we'll talk about later. So, uh, we covered zakat, we covered sadaqah. The next term is nisab. Nisab. And we're going to stick to these terms in Arabic. We'll just say nisab after this. But nisab is that designated portion or that minimum threshold. And that is defined as the amount of wealth you must have to be liable for paying zakat. 
And we're going to give some case studies, some scenarios to show you how that works. That's all coming later. We're just now defining our terms. The next word is fitr. Now fitr, we think of uh, zakatul fitr, right? And that's what we're paying before the Eid. This means, fitr literally means breaking the fast, like breakfast. And you have other terms used in different cultures. They say the fitri or fitrana, they use these different terms, but they all refer to the same thing, which is a specific type and a specific amount of food given to the poor at the end of Ramadan as a way of wiping away any sins you might have earned while fasting in the month of Ramadan. Now notice I said food. We're going to talk about zakat al-fitr at almost the very end of this module, but we say food because that's the asl, that's the default. It is the Hanafi position that's come to be adopted by virtually every other, uh, every region in the world, even where there's no Hanafis, that uh, money can be used as a substitute for food in Zakat al-Fitr. But the asl is that it is food, a certain type and a certain amount. And we'll come back to that later. The next two terms are dinar and dirham. Now, do any of you own any dinars or dirham? I don't, I don't mean Moroccan darahim. I mean the gold and the silver, the actual gold and silver. Well, we, ta- we use these terms because this is how we understand what the nisab is, right? Because it's calculated based on what was determined in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu so the dinar is a gold coin that weighs approximately 4.235 grams used during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu And the dirham is a silver coin weighing approximately 2.9645 grams used during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu So we, we factor these in when we talk about calculating the nisab and then applying that to uh, other currencies. Okay. We then have this term mithqal. And mithqal, and we use this term because, again, this is how we calculate. It's a measure of weight equivalent to the weight of a dinar. Of a dinar. So when you hear one mithqal, think one dinar. So you'll be hearing these words uh, quite soon. And then we have the term hawl, right? Hawl is our last uh, term here. And that is basically the zakat year. You know, you have the fiscal year, right? So the hawl is like the fiscal year for zakat. And this is when you are obliged to pay your zakat, is when the wealth has reached that nisab and has not dipped below it for an entire hawl, an entire zakat fiscal year. How long is a hawl? It's one lunar year. It's important to note that it's one lunar year. Why? Because we live our days here using the Gregorian calendar, which is solar. And there are 365 days in the Gregorian calendar. And the lunar calendar is about 11 days less. So this means that if you've had the money uh, at the level of nisab and beyond for over the hawl, you know, 365 days, you're actually a little bit late in paying the zakat. So you should actually be paying it once it reaches the hawl. And of course, I know there's a lot of questions about multiple sources and when you come into this and to that, how you do this. But that's the term we want to familiarize ourselves with. The term hawl, which is a single lunar year. So it's 11 days shorter than the Gregorian year. So we have number one, zakat. Number two, sadaqah. When together, sadaqah is voluntary. The nisab is that minimum threshold, that designated portion. And then you have the fitr. Then you have the currency, like dinar, the dirham, the mithqal. And then the the time period, the fiscal zakat year, the hawl. These are all terms. 
And uh, inshallah, you shouldn't have any other terms coming besides these. All right. Now, having learned the terms, we're in the process of learning the how, how to pay zakat. We need to learn the conditions for the obligation, shurutul wujub. Remember for module five, salat, the conditions of obligation for salat. We said Islam, sanity, maturity, puberty, right? So Islam, aql bulugh, right? You have to be Muslim, you have to be at the age of maturity, and you have to be sane, right? That's the condition for the obligation. If you don't have those conditions, it's not obligatory on you. Now, zakat has conditions too. One of the conditions for its obligation, I mean, and the first condition is that one's wealth reach or surpass the nisab, that, that threshold. So that's going to exclude anyone whose wealth is dipping below that threshold. So if you think of your money in a, in a chart and it, it goes up and down your earnings and there's a solid line above it, that line would be the nisab. If your money goes to that line and above it, but at the end of that year is dipping below, at the end of the year you're below the nisab. You're not paying zakat. So your wealth has to reach that nisab. We'll talk about how much that is for each different thing. But you, your wealth has to reach that nisab. If you have, let's put it this way. If you're a poor university student eating ramen noodles and your wealth is, let's say you only have $400 in your bank account, you're not paying zakat. You could receive zakat, right? Because your wealth hasn't reached the nisab. Or maybe it's gone to the nisab and beyond, but then you spent all the money on textbooks and ramen noodles and you're below the level, no zakat on you. So the first condition is that it has to reach the nisab, which we'll talk about next week. The next condition is that one is the owner of the wealth. It has to be yours, right? So that means that those who are holding on to any money for other people, for safekeeping, are not ordered to pay zakat on that money. So let's say you have a, let's say you have a big treasure chest and you dug it in your backyard and you're holding $500,000 for someone for safekeeping. Don't tell anyone that. But if you do, do you pay zakat on that? No, it's not yours, right? Now, what about the person? Well, yeah, they, they, have, they have an issue here. They have to pay zakat on that, depending on the situation. Um, number two, those who do not have access and control of their wealth do not pay zakat on that money. And we're, we're going to talk more about that later, but basically, let's say you loan someone um, money, and it's, you call it a bad debt. Meaning it's not easy to get that money back. They're, they're in hard times. They don't have it or whatever. It's money technically owed to you that's going to come back to you, but it's not easy to access it. So you're not paying zakat on that at that moment. Um, if your money, let's say your money is in a treasure chest and you were on a ship and there was a storm and your treasure chest of gold coins fell overboard and you've never been able to find it despite deep diving looking for it. Is your money at the bottom of the ocean? Yes. Is it yours? Yes. But do you have easy access to it? No, you can't even find it. So you're not paying zakat on that. Now, what if you find it? We'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, if your money is mixed with other people's money, so you've invested a certain amount of money and it's mixed with others and there hasn't been that return, it's all mixed up. You don't have easy access to that. So, and you can't just say, hey, I want my money back. It's mixed up in the business. No zakat on that, right? Because you don't have this possession. Um, also, those who have lost their wealth. So let's say you've given up your search for the money that you've lost at sea or you dropped you know, a large sum of money, thousands of dollars, God forbid. I saw a man in the masjid years ago taking off his jacket to make wudu 
and a huge envelope full of cash just fell out and he didn't realize it was there until someone thankfully picked it up and brought it to him. Thank God for honest people. But that could have been someone who lost their money. If that was $10,000, that's beyond the nisab. But they lost it. They don't have access to it. So there's no zakat on that. So that's the second condition. You, you have to be the owner and you have to have reasonable access and control of that. The third condition of the obligation is the passing of the hawl. So let's say your money has reached the nisab and beyond, but it's only been six months. Do you pay zakat on that? No. It hasn't reached the time. It has to go to that hawl before zakat becomes an obligation on you. The next condition of obligation is the absence of short-term debt. What's the opposite of short-term debt? Long-term debt. The absence of short-term debt. And this pertains to the zakat of money. A short-term debt is basically a debt that is owed in full within a year. You have to pay that short-term debt before you pay zakat. So let's say a person, their money has reached the nisab and beyond, and the hawl, the, the one-year period has elapsed, but they have a debt that has to be paid within that year. What do they do? They pay that debt before they pay zakat. If there's money left over, then that's what they calculate for their zakat. If they pay that debt and it causes their money to dip below the nisab, there's no zakat. But the priority here is if the short-term debt is present, they have to pay the short-term debt before they calculate for the amount of zakat they're going to pay that year. And this is short-term debt, not long-term debt. And this is based on the position, the saying of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu, because he announced in the presence of the Sahaba as the ruler, and no one disagreed with him, which is a kind of ijma'ah, he says, this is the month of your zakat, so pay the debts you owe to others, then pay your zakat. So you got to take care of those short-term debts before you take care of the calculating of zakat, or you calculate it after you've taken care of that. Now, a long-term debt is a debt that's being paid and taking longer than a year. The terms are beyond a year. There's going to be fixed installments. Uh, that is not deductible from your zakat. Like say, say a person, oh, they have, they have uh, let's say they have $10,000 of zakat, right? They're making bank, but they're also paying a mortgage. And they say there's $50,000 left on the mortgage. Do they say, well, I gotta, you know, I gotta pay that, and therefore I'm not paying zakat. Doesn't work that way. If it's a long-term debt and there's fixed payments, and you're paying it on the long term, that debt is not deductible. The only debt that's deductible in the zakat is the short-term debt. So let's say you're paying, let's say you're paying $500 a month on a debt that you're fulfilling on installment within a one-year period, short-term debt, right? You're going to deduct from this, right? You're not going to deduct from the long-term debt in its total. So let's look at an example to clarify how this would look. Uh, the example here, let's say the nisab is $2,000. We're not saying it is, but let's just assume for a round number that the nisab is $2,000. Zaid's zakatable assets amount to $5,000. Right? So is his money beyond the nisab? Yes. Because nisab is 2,000, he's got 5,000, so it's beyond the nisab. He also has an outstanding mortgage of $50,000 with fixed monthly installments of $500. That mortgage is a long-term debt. So at the time of the hawl, Zaid is only going to subtract the upcoming installment of 500 and would have to pay zakat on 4500 So yes, the long-term debt is there. You're paying installments. So you're only deducting for that immediate installment of that month at the time of the hawl. 
You're not deducting for the entire thing. So once you've paid that, or once you've deducted that 500 from what is owed in the, the mortgage, you're left with $4,500. That is the zakatable income now. So he's going to calculate how much he has to pay of that, and 2.5% of $4,500 is $112.50. So, yeah, it's just, again, like we mentioned in the description of the why, zakat forces you to know where your money is going, where it's coming, where it's tied up, where it's not. What is a short-term debt? What's a long-term debt? Where is it invested? It forces you to be aware of what's going on. And it takes you out of this uh, automated way of dealing with your money. So the absence of short-term debt is a condition for the obligation of zakat. Um, now there's a question here I put towards the end. Go back to module five. We said that the, uh, the condition of obligation for prayer is aql, uh, bulugh, islam. Islam, aql, bulugh. They have to be Muslim, they have to be sane, and they have to have attained the age of pu puberty. Right? That's when prayer is an obligation, where it's fard on them. Right? What about zakat? Do you have to be sane? As an, is, is, that, is that a condition for the obligation of zakat? Is uh, being past the age of puberty a condition for the obligation of zakat? Well, there's a difference of opinion about this. The question is, do children pay zakat? Say, let's say the grandparents gave the child a nice little sum of money to put in the bank. And... It's beyond the nisab, but they're seven years old. Do they have to pay zakat on that? Well, well, you guys are coming from Pakistan. And in the Hanafi school, you are correct. In the Hanafi school, there is no zakat paid from children. However, the jumhur, meaning the other three madahib, they say, yes, zakat is paid on the wealth of children. Their guardians, their parents, take the portion of zakat from that wealth and they pay it on the child's behalf. So let's look at that question. In the Hanafi school, prepubescent children do not pay zakat on wealth given to them. And in the other three schools of law, the child's caretakers discharge the zakat on their behalf. What's going on here? In the Hanafi school, they reason that zakat is an act of ibadah and every act of ibadah requires a niyyah, an intention. And minors, you know, those who are prepubescent, are not mukhatab bisharia. They're not addressed with the obligations of law. The obligations of law are only addressed to people who have attained the age of puberty and beyond. So in their reasoning, the wealth of children is not subject to zakat. They just keep it. That's it. But in the position of the Madiki school, the Shafi'i school, and the Hanbali school, right? If it's a numbers game, you know, they're winning, right? Their reasoning is that, no, children do have to pay zakat. Or the parents have to make sure this happens. They have to take that portion and pay it on the child's behalf because zakat, yes, it's an act of worship, but it's also the right of the poor for those who have zakat-eligible wealth. So the wealth of children is included in that. And it's not my position to say which one is right, which one is wrong. It's ijtihad. It is ijtihad. And they both have strong reasonings for their positions. If you want to be on the safe side, you would calculate the zakat from whatever money is in your children's savings that they have before they hit puberty. And regardless, if they keep that money, you have to educate them on the obligation of zakat 
and teach them how to pay it, how to calculate it. It's pretty simple. It's just, I mean, today things are facilitated greatly with zakat calculators, but to know it in this way is a lot better. But you've got to teach the children how to do that for whatever money they have in their savings. Uh, that's it for today. So we really just introduced zakat as um, this third pillar of Islam. We looked at the how and the why and the conditions of obligation. And next week, inshallah, we're going to look at how we calculate the zakat on gold, silver, and currencies and related financial instruments. We'll look at zakat on debts and zakat on fa'idah, meaning inheritance, dowry, gifts, etc. Because each of these has a different way of calculation that we need to know. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillah. Wa iyaakum.